sure wish I could get one of those shirts. and hot butter toast Yes, this breakfast is really the most Oh, what a wonderful thing to do Eggs over easy hash browns And you will go to Angelo's Cause the place really hops We'll go to Angelo's Where the service is tops We'll go to Angelo's We'll be licking our chops Mama, we'll pull out the stops They'll say, what's up, man? And we'll just have to boast about the eggs over easy hash browns and toast. A song about a breakfast date in Ann Arbor. Uh, what a great way to start um, this afternoon's edition of the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I am your host for this summer, Amanda Yuli. I'm sitting in for T. Hetzel on Living Writers. And this afternoon, we have a food-centric and Ann Arbor-centric mm-hmm. uh, guest and book that we're highlighting. Gail Offen, welcome to the studio. Thanks so much. We Very are- nostalgic to be here. <laughs> Why is it nostalgic? Do you have oh, I had friends here? when I went to U of M. I had friends that had shows here, so it's just wonderful to be back at CBN. Oh, this is not your first time here. I didn't realize. But it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice to see you here. Thank you. See, we didn't get a chance to catch up. I was screeching in at the very, very last moment uh, before our show started. Um, Gail, your book is Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor, um, and it was published uh, late last year. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Um, and you have taken an amazing research-based approach to um, Ann Arbor's most wonderful, most beloved restaurants uh, then and now, um, and we're going to talk about those Great. this hour. I would love to hear, I think it's pretty obvious to our listeners, but why don't you uh, kick us off by telling why you chose Dick Siegel and his song Angelo's to kick right. off the hour. Right, Angelo's is, we actually put the lyrics in our book, Dick Siegel, who's a longtime Ann Arbor uh, singer, carpenter, a man of many talents, he penned the song about Angelo's in 1980 after, obviously, a great breakfast there. And to me, uh, Angelo's is one of the most iconic places in Ann Arbor. There's certain restaurants that people want to come back to every time they come to Ann Arbor, and Angelo's is one of them. They're famous for their raisin toast and their great breakfast. And one of the things we talk about in the book is the guy who bought it way back in the 60s. His, he, there was a restaurant called Angelo's. His name was Angelo, so he bought it and he didn't even have to change the name, <laughs> which is great. And uh, his family still runs it. His son runs it. He passed away in the 80s and mm-hmm. it's down by the hospital. People love it. But Dick Siegel took that song and made it famous and people still play it all over the world. And you're right. Angelo's is a place that people who have been here in their undergrad years or who have been here for a visit um, e- even years ago will return to Ann Arbor, and that's one that's on their short list. Um, well, and it's great, too, because when you're a student, you can't always afford these places. And now when people get older and they l- read the book, they go, now I can afford to actually go back to some of these places <laughs> that I didn't have money to go to when I was a student. 
Right, right. Uh, what is it about Angelo? Since we're starting there, what is it about them? Is it just the raisin toast? It can't be just that. Why not? Toast. Just well, okay, okay. Maybe, <laughs> but it no, just it's their homemade breads. Their wonderful big breakfast, and I think it just has that family-run vibe. That mm-hmm. there's still lines on the weekends. Plus, it's near the hospital, so I think it's very convenient for a lot of people as well. Naturally, sure. Um, Gail, will you tell us how this book came about? It's beautiful, by oh, the way. Thank you. Um, lots of amazing images of uh, from your collection, um, some of them, um, and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, tell us more about how the book came about. It's funny because I'd written a previous book called Grand River Avenue from Detroit to Lake Michigan. It's sort of a, a road trip because it's the Route 66 of Michigan. It starts, Grand River starts in Detroit and goes all the way across the state. And a friend of mine was coming from out of town and wanted to know about some restaurants in Ann Arbor. And I said, well, I'm going to get you a book. And I couldn't find any books on Ann Arbor restaurants, which just seems so odd. There's not any books. This is about, the first one. This is the, apparently the first one. And so, of course, I had to write it because I feel obviously very passionate about restaurants, past and present. But, you know, restaurants in Ann Arbor, when people went, go to school here, they may meet their spouse here. They may meet some of their best friends. And they have such an emotional attachment to these places. I wanted to capture that as well. So it was so much fun to talk to the people who started these restaurants, people here, long gone. It was such a, a fun way to find out more about Ann Arbor restaurants. I can imagine. And what was the research like? I'm hoping it involved lots, <laughs> lots, lots of delicious lots, meals. Lots and... of delicious meals. But we also had some incredible help from people who uh, are basically archivists. They would, people like Jan Langone, who has one of the largest cookbook collections in the world, and it's at the Hatcher Library. Right, And Susan here. Weinberg, who is on the Historic Commission. Basically, these women would just take menus and ephemera like this and drop it into a box. They're like time capsules. And so we were able to look through and find old menus and old ads and things like that. And we went through old newspapers and made phone calls to people who knew people that were still alive and got a lot of great stories about these places. So it was fun and delicious to research, (laughs) going back to some of the places that we used to enjoy. That's great. Um, Yeah, there's something about old menus. I have a a little bit of a thing for old menus, too. I feel like you learn so much about the time, maybe about the people who ate there, uh, based on what is on a menu, the prices. Mm -hmm. The prices are always fun to look at. And basically what people ate back then, which Uh might be so different from what people eat now. Yeah. Or the same, or in the some s- cases. Chapatis then, chapatis now. Yes, yeah, right. It's still good. And diner food. I mean, I don't. I would guess that Angela's menu hasn't changed. No, that's an interesting much. point because the Fleetwood Diner has been around since 1949. It was called the Dagwood Diner, mm-hmm. but I, I sometimes I look at that and I think it, it hasn't changed that much. Just the prices. It's still eggs and hippie hash. And, and the amazing graffiti, as I like to say, in the basement of the uh, Fleetwood Diner, the scariest bathroom with the greatest graffiti. It's totally <laughs> worth the trip downstairs. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, this is uh, We're talking to Gail Offen, uh, author of Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor. And this is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, today is Wednesday, August 16th, 2017. I'm Amanda Yuley. Thanks, Gail, for talking restaurants with us. Um, so when did you, you have some history in Ann Arbor. When did you first come to Ann Arbor? And I guess the other part of that question is, is that your... Um, 
Is that the place and time in your heart that is mm. <laughs> that is closest uh, to all those feelings of nostalgia that we were just talking about with restaurants? Well, that's a great question because as a child, um, we have a, a family cottage, a little cottage on Horseshoe Lake, which is uh, about 10 miles south of here. And I had an uncle who I dedicated the book to that was a voracious eater and bon vivant. And my Uncle Mort would take us into Ann Arbor. We'd spend the whole summer there. And growing up, I'd spend Good. every summer there. And we'd come to Ann Arbor. We'd go to Drake's and have limeade. And we go to Curtis's Chicken in the Rough and have fried chicken, and we go to the farmer's market. We go to Afternoon Delight for the, the first salad bar in Ann Arbor. And he, he and I learned so much about the food growing up as a kid. Then I came to school, went to U of M, and um, I actually worked at Pizza Bob, so there's a connection there. You did. And, you know, Ann Arbor's this wonderful place that even when you leave, it never really leaves you. And so... Even, I live about 30 miles north of here now, and mm-hmm. I still come on as much as I can to Ann Arbor. Yeah, people have those feelings. It's something maybe about the college years, too. You spent some college years here, as um, as many have. <laughs> um, but those restaurants that you went to when you were 18 or 20 years old with friends and when your life was changing, those are, um, those are important times. I think that's part of why some restaurants are so... Um, deeply held in people's hearts. And it's not even the food necessarily. No, if you look at a place the like the Pretzel Bell, which unfortunately is not still around, but when I was doing this book, that was the number one restaurant people asked me about because people Bell. used to celebrate their 21st birthday there. Oh, sure. And apparently it was filthy. It had cockroaches. People wrote their names on the tables, <laughs> right. but it had it had an ambiance that people wanted to hang out there. It was always busy and always had people hanging out there. Yeah. So sometimes it's not even the food. It's just what it feels like. No, and the brown jug, I think, has maybe a little bit later years. I'm going to put out a call to everybody to please go to the brown jug because that whole block is getting torn up, and I'm really worried we're going to lose the brown jug because the brown jug is the oldest existing restaurant in Ann Arbor. Is that so? It started in 1936, Uh and it's the oldest continually operating restaurant. My Uncle Bob used to make donuts there in the window in in the 1940s. Is that right? He was the donut maker. So, um, but it's still a place you go and it still kind of has that old restaurant vibe. And yeah. and it's fun to get sandwiches named out of, after football players. You can get a Charles Woodson sandwich <laughs> and it has all that memorabilia on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's just such a part of Ann Arbor. And I encourage people to go and check these places out while they're still around, you know? While they're here. Yeah. yeah. No, that, so the Brown Jack opened in 1936, mm-hmm. you said? I didn't realize it was mm. that old. That's fantastic. Good pizza um, still, too. Yeah. Is it still a college student hangout? I haven't it, been. This is showing that I haven't been there. Well, it's time. interesting because it's almost like the new Pretzel Bell in the sense that a lot of people go and celebrate their 21st birthday there. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of students. Yeah, yeah, it's that kind of place. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, tell me about um, your co author for the book. And then um, I, I noted your. Uh, introduction writer is Ari from Zingerman's. Oh, yes. It was wonderful to have Ari do the introduction because Zingerman's is celebrating their 35th anniversary. And and when you say Ann Arbor to most people, they think Zingerman's because it's got such national coverage. But I just admire what the people at Zingerman's do, how they've never franchised, never gone anywhere else, just kept true to who they are and stayed here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're so, yeah, and Ari also went to school here, and he also said he couldn't afford to eat anywhere here when he was going to school here. So, um, but he's done quite well for himself, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was really nice to have his perspective kind of open the book because I, I think you're right. What you said a moment ago about uh, people when they think about Ann Arbor and food, um, or sometimes if they just think about Ann Arbor.
remember, Zingerman's is top of mind. It right. is truly that iconic kind of food brand um, and has been for, for so long. So mm-hmm. his his view on it, uh, coming here as a college student, um, is really important. And he did something interesting in the introduction when he ca- t- uses, and I'm going to badly say the French word terroir, which means the earth. He's, he sort of muses in there, is it about, is there something about Ann Arbor itself that leads to having all these restaurants? Because for a town this small, there's a lot of restaurants. And no slam against East Lansing, which is also a college town, but there really isn't that depth of restaurant there, different mm-hmm. kinds and ones that have been around so long. And he thinks there's something about Ann Arbor that creates this atmosphere where people want to open up these very iconic restaurants. Who am I to argue with Ari? <laughs> no, no one should. No one ever should. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think we're going to take a quick music break. Okay. Uh, we're going to play the next song that you chose uh, for the hour, and it's Scott Joplin. And-, and it's in honor of my co-writer, John Mylan, who is a ragtime pianist and jazz historian. He's written a book on Detroit jazz in the 20s, which is an excellent book. Detroit was the hotbed of jazz in the 20s, and this is his favorite rag by Scott Joplin called the Silver Swan Rag. Let's hear it. with The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host uh, this summer, Amanda Yuley, and we're here with Gail Offen, who is author of Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor, Um, and she has in front of her a well-thumbed copy. (laughs) Um, Lots of food stains on there as well, really. uh, That's nice to know. Does it go around and uh, make visits uh, to these restaurants? Um, So if you haven't seen the book, um, it is beautiful and filled with these illustrations um, that show historical menus. I shouldn't say just historical, some modern day menus probably too. Um, Photos of interiors and exteriors of uh, some of these um, classic and beloved Ann Arbor restaurants. Um, Where's the book available, Gail? Can you tell us? Well, the book is available. um, I always like to talk about local bookstores. Of course, I first mentioned Literati. 
it's available there. It's available at Barnes and Noble, and it's available at Nicola's, and then online in Barnes and Noble, and of course Amazon, and uh, Arcadia Publishing, which Arcadia is an interesting publisher. It publishes a lot of local history, and if you want to know about a lot of where you live, they usually have an Arcadia book that's. It has something about it. So. And this is your second book with Arcadia, yes, and, right? Yes, and my co-author, John, has done two other books, one on Michigan Avenue and one on Detroit Jazz in the 20s. So Arcadia Publishing is just an interesting site to go on and, and look at from different states. It's a national publisher, so sure. yeah. Yeah. Um, so we were talking a little bit before about uh, what uh, makes Ann Arbor um, a place where restaurants kind of thrive and mm-hmm. pop up. Do you have a theory? Do you, do you have a theory about what uh, what the special mix is? Because I feel like it's always been that way, and your book really shows that. I think it also depends on what time of uh, year it was. For example, there's certain restaurants that feel very much of their era. For example, mm-hmm. um, back in the 20s, there was this place called the Ritz Dine and Dance and it's on State Street, and the 20s and 30s, it was this nightclub. And what's interesting now, if you see where CVS is, and you look at the sign, it's got an interesting sort of deco sign, and it's an echo of this Ritz restaurant. Really? It's, a, it's sort of a duplicate. And in this book, we try and tell you little secrets of things you may not know when you walk by, but now when you look at that CVS sign, it's an sort of an art, has an art deco feel, and it echoes the actual sign from the Ritz. So we like to tell people about the history of what went on around them in Ann Arbor, even though they might it might not always be apparent before there was a CVS before there was a CVS. <laughs> definitely. But then when you look at like even there's a, we have a picture in the book of near where Drake's was in the 20s and you can sort of make out the streets still look the same and you just try mm-hmm. and imagine what some of these places used to be. It's it's kind of fun to think about that. Oh, it's fascinating to see that and to see how some of the structures are still there and some of the you know awnings are similar and you can see that sort of shadow and how some of the traditions. For example, it's a very German restaurant and Greek restaurant. It always, what kind of town has three German restaurants? Think about that. There's still three German restaurants. They, some of them went in and out of existence, but the three major ones, Metzger's, the Heidelberg, and the Old German, are still around. You know, in different locations, but that's a lot of German restaurants for a, to- a small town like Ann Arbor. And they've been popular for decades. Right. So that's another tradition of Ann Arbor and Greek restaurants. I think about the Parthenon, which is where the new redone Pretzel Bell was, which there was a lot of Greek restaurants, which unfortunately have sort of died out. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of very Ann Arbor traditions like that that still continue. I think Ann Arbor was um, pioneering in international cuisine around the state. Do you agree? Yes. And that's first... interesting, too, because when people came from small towns, they weren't used to eating what was called ethnic food. So there was a restaurant called Kana which was up on the hill, and it was around since the 60s, a lot of people had never seen Korean, you know, eaten Korean food. And then there was a place called Steve's Lunch that people really remember fondly on South U. You know, maybe they've never even had Chinese food, you know. So there was a lot of these little ethnic restaurants that people sampled when they were, and they tended to be cheaper so people could try it. And it opened up a whole new world for them in the world of food. And do you think that's uh, largely the university's influence? Or I do, else? because yeah. I think they have to examine, you know, Indian restaurants and other. And now there's much more diversity in cuisine, but much more, much, know. much more. And I think people are more adventuresome now. I don't think people were as adventuresome or as adventurous. Somebody's going to call me up and complain later <laughs> that I use the wrong word. 
but um, I, I think people are more willing to try more unusual food now. Yeah. Well, things have changed uh, in the dining scene, certainly nationwide, but here, too. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting um, things that I noted in your book was how the dining scene, how the eating out scene changed with liquor laws um, as, as time went on. Of course, there's no uh, uni- college or university that um, can operate independent of those uh, laws about when and how and where alcohol can be served. Um, and so that changed in Ann Arbor. And I'd love for you to tell us. Well, that's one of the, our other little happened. secrets in the book that is Division Street. And we have an ad in here for the Dixie Barbecue, which is on Washington. Mm-hmm. And in the ad, it says um, it's the closest, nearest restaurant to the campus serving beer and wine. And after Prohibition, Division Street was the dividing line between where you could get liquor and where you couldn't. So obviously the side closest to campus, you couldn't get any beer and wine. And here's the Dixie Barbecue. Uh, this ad's from 1933, advertising that it's the closest place to Division Street mm-hmm. that you get beer and wine. And uh, the Dixie Barbecue on 207 East Washington is still a barbecue restaurant because that's where the blue tractor is. And they still serve alcohol. And they still serve alcohol. And you can now <laughs> yes. get it pretty much anywhere, but it was a really big uh-huh. deal. So now when you see Division Street, you know why it's named that. Right. And I think that was fascinating. Do, do you know when it uh, when it changed? Because now, you know, Ashley's is across from the Diag, and there's certainly alcohol served much closer mm, to campus. Yeah, I don't know exactly when it changed, but one of the other things about liquor we found was the guy that owned the Rubiot. He wanted to sell wine by the glass up until, this is 1960, you couldn't get wine by the glass. You just had to buy a whole bottle. Is that so? And so he went to Lansing and petitioned to be able to be the first restaurant in Michigan to sell wine by the glass, and he was successful. And the Rubiat, which was a fancy gourmet, the the Rubiat was this restaurant down on uh, Huron Street, which was considered a gourmet restaurant. You could get Chateaubriand. It was a place where when your parents came from out of town, you'd take them there. Mm-hmm. It was like a dress-up date kind of place owned by this guy named Greg Fennerly, a real character. And he went on to start the Oyster Bar and Spaghetti Machine. And later, the Rubiat turned into um, a nightclub where Madonna used to dance. And it became the first place to have same-sex dancing. It became like a disco nightclub and, and something like that. But he was the guy that blazed the trail for glasses mm-hmm. of wine in Ann Arbor. And that was in the 60s. Yep, 1960. He was able to get wine by the glass. Yeah, what a difference. Um, You know, I've talked to folks who attended the university or was part of the student community years and years ago, and it sounds like um, few students went much beyond campus. And so did you you find that in your research, that the student places really were... Right, because again, they, mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't have cars like we have mm-hmm. now, and I don't want to start like one of those people. The kids today, they have cars, <laughs> but I just think now students seem to have much more, what should I say, disposable income. I look at the luxury high-rises these students live yeah. in, and I think about how we all used to live in crappy houses with broken stairs, which I think is an important part of college. It, but, it is, in, yeah. you know, you're all just looking under sofa cushions for money to buy some kind of random beer. So uh-huh. it's it was sort of a big deal when you went out to eat back, you know, before That's recent too, times, yeah, sure. or even drinking. So yeah. nowadays, I think um, it's it's a little more upscale as far as that goes. Right. How did you uh, go through what must have been a very challenging process of choosing what goes in this book? You can only fit so much, and I'm sure it's not all here. I'm so glad you asked that, because the format of this publisher is that you have to have a picture or an ad. You have to have a graphic in order to put it in the book. And we wanted to really put in more African-American-owned restaurants. We feel like that, unfortunately, is not addressed enough in this book, but you can't put it in unless you can find a picture. 
And there we could we looked through the libraries, we looked through microfilms. The only African American owned restaurant we could find was DeLong's Barbecue, right. which was down by Carytown for thirty four years. We were glad we were able to put this in the book, but we we chased down and we never could find any ads or pictures to put in there. So if we do a sequel, we'd love to have anybody out there, if they have any pictures of African-American restaurants or story, I'd love to put that story in there. I feel that's the part that's really lacking. But everything else, it was, oh my gosh, we had to leave out like at least almost 100 restaurants that we couldn't put really? in there because we just didn't have room. It was right. sort of like we went around and ranked them. And, <laughs> and there were some that people absolutely, like the top three were Pretzel Bell, Drake's, and this place called the Whiffle Tree on Huron. Those were like mm-hmm. the n- top three. And then there were some must-haves. So, yeah. There's another book in there. In I don't words. know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> we have a lot more stories to tell. Certainly. And well, and some of the stories. Oh, go on. No. Um, I was going to say some of the ones that we tell, we do, we've been doing a lot of talks and We've learned so many stories from people that come to these talks that we tell their stories yeah. when we go and talk about it. We love that. We love learning about if you, you know, date stories and other things like that. Yeah. Well, on the break, I'll tell you a, a story about a oh, restaurant good. on Packard uh, by where we live. Um, but for now, do you have uh, one a story picked out that you'd like to share with listeners and read? Sure. Um, I'd actually, because of the next song that's coming up, I wanted to talk about a very hippie enclave that's very much missed called the Del Rio, which was a bar uh, that um, was owned by, um, well, I'll read it in the book here, and it's uh, about the Del Rio. And it's uh, the, the headline is, All Together Now, Part Political Movement, Part Social Experiment, and All Landmark, the Del Rio had the best bathroom graffiti. Started in 1970 by Rick Burgess, who later owned the Earl, and Ernie Harburg, whose father wrote all of the Wizard of Oz lyrics. It ran as a cooperative, with the staff deciding everything. Anti-war and feminist groups met here, part of the cultural mix as eclectic as the music tapes along the walls. Burritos and chewy whole wheat pizza were popular, along with the Zapata and the Tempe Reuben. Many menu items were named after the staff, like the Det Burger, uh, named for cook Bob Detweiler, and that was a hamburger steamed in beer. And Chef Sarah <laughs> Moulton started here. Amazingly, this hippie halcyon lasted for 30 years. The new owners changed things up, and the spirit was gone. It closed in, ni- in 2004. But for many... Late afternoon sunlight, streaming through the window, live jazz on Sundays, and sipping a bass ale will always be pretty close to perfect. Pretty great uh, description of what it was like to sit in that uh, Del Rio in the afternoon. And we have some great Um, pictures in there that will really bring back memories for people. Certainly. Um, When you describe, uh, and we'll get into the song that that is corresponding to that in a minute, Mm -hmm. but when you describe... um, the Del Rio that way. I wonder if you could speak to restaurants as community spaces, mm. uh, you know, restaurants that um, speak to people as it's more than just a meal, but it's a um, restaurants as a place to connect. That place was a real, from everything I've heard, the, the, it was a real gathering place for groups. Everybody was welcome. And back then there weren't, it's not as welcoming as many restaurants were now. So there was a lot of anti-war groups. There was a lot of feminist groups. There was a lot of groups that weren't allowed to meet on campus necessarily because they were considered too radical. And so they found a home there because, as I said, in about the everything was decided communally. I heard these great stories about sometimes you'd wait an hour for your hamburger because 
they decided communally they were all going to take a break and they weren't going to serve your hamburger. <laughs> but everything from menus to what music was going to be played, everything was a communal decision because it is so what I call of its time. Everything was it was like run like a co-op. And I think it's a beautiful snapshot in time where people went there fully, fully expecting that experience, never knowing who you might see and and just just being able to hang with whoever was in there. Um, and on that note, I wonder if we could um, trouble you to read uh, the other part of the Del sure. Rio. <laughs> I've heard a lot of great stories yeah. about working there. So um, one former Del Rio wait person remembers a night when the Colombian soccer team came in, broke glasses, and caused general mayhem. In the midst of chaos, a couple came in and quietly ordered burritos and a beer. It was not until the next morning that the staff member realized the most normal part of her night had been serving Patty Smith and Fred Sonic Smith. Author, historian, educator, and the incredible source for this book, Susan Weinberg and her husband, Lars Bjorn, met at the Del Rio in 1976. She calls it her bicentennial romance, and they married seven years later. Every August, they celebrated their wedding anniversary, and they always made sure they got their regular table near the door. And there's a picture of them in it's the book. It's a wonderful picture. Yeah. yeah. And he's a professor as well, so I think they're very well known around town. Uh, restaurants as community spaces. I'd um, love to talk more um, after this song break, maybe about restaurants today in Ann Arbor that are serving that purpose. Okay. Um, but for now, let's hear Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so of that break. era, that's of why the, I Of the that. WO era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Let's hear it. I told you a million times how I love you. The honey, your old fickle heart won't let me in. So I'll just relax here with this glass of gin. Head for the ozone again. Here we go now. I'm lost in the ozone again. I'm lost in the ozone again. One drink of wine, two drinks of gin. And I'm lost in the ozone again. Downtown, there's a thousand swinging doors gonna let you in. I tuck the kids in bed <laughs> at eight o'clock, and then I'm gonna hit for the ozone again. Just watch me. I'm lost in the ozone again. We're back at the Living Writers Show here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're here with Gail Offen, who is author of Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor, and we are talking food and meals and restaurants and good stuff uh, to find in Ann Arbor. Um, that was Commander Cody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Commander Cody's a real archi- uh, of 70s band. It's late 60s, early 70s sort of, um, they formed in Ann Arbor. They went on to have a lot of national hits, including their biggest hit was Hot Rod Lincoln. But I think about that music, and I think it's a perfect example of what went on in the Del Rio, the kind of music they play. And 
you know, a lot of um, musicians, when they would come and play Ann Arbor, they'd after their shows, they'd come and hang out in a lot of these Ann Arbor bars. The Del Rio was one. Mr. Flood's Party was another one. That was also on Liberty and had these incredible Tiffany lamps. I, I don't even know if they were real. They might have been. But they had Allen Ginsberg did poetry readings there. Bonnie Raitt used to hang out there. Johnny Winter. They even had this, a porn star named John Leslie as their bartender. And But those were places people... Would these musicians like Commander Cody would just go after and just stay for hours and hang out there? Part of the culture. Yeah. Um, in addition to sort of famous people and visitors coming through town and hanging out, I think um, restaurants can be this place where people come together, um, ordinary people, um, you know, people who live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder how you see that change in restaurants, either in Ann Arbor or elsewhere. I mean, has the has the internet, has our sense of connecting digitally changed that craving that people have to kind of get together over a plate of food or a beer in I town? still think Ann Arbor has places that are community gathering spaces. And I think about Dominic's. I think if you, I think that's a perfect example of, and I can't obviously speak to other towns, but when I think about Dominic's, first of all, Dominic's goes on the U of M schedule. It opens up the week after spring break mm-hmm. and it closes after the last home game. It's a family-run place. They have this beautiful courtyard. And it's to me, when I went to school here a long time ago, and if I look now, it's exactly the same. It's just there's more piercings and things like that. But <laughs> it looks at people. The fountains. That, the fountains. The and there's fountains. these picnic tables. So uh-huh. I find that interesting that people are still willing to sit with perfect strangers. There's not that yeah. many... Play, you know, Mark's Carts is sort of like that, where people can uh-huh. sit and just with people they don't know. But there's something about Dominic's that, and they they used they used uh, mason jars before they were trendy to serve sangria. There's something about They're that. They're way ahead of trends oh, on, yeah. on the sort of family style seating and the mason that, jars. And that was and, back um, in the late 60s, early mm-hmm. 70s. And it changed. hasn't changed at all. But I look at that place and you have a, such a mixture of people, students and teachers and just everyday people all sitting in a beautiful summer afternoon enjoying a glass of sangria and I communally usually communally <laughs> exactly and and then I think about places like Frank's which is one of the last of the old time counters and breakfast places on Maynard and that place I find interesting because they frown on you for using electronic media there they don't want you to if you take out your laptop there you're talking on your cell phone the, everybody at gives Frank's. you a dirty look at it's Frank's. Yeah, not going to happen. That yeah. looks like something out of an Edward Hopper painting in there. <laughs> and that's another one of those places I tell people. So I think people still are seeking out these places where they can talk to each other face to face and still have this experience in sort of an old-fashioned setting that makes them feel comfortable. And I think that's very important. I think Ann Arbor has a lot of those, maybe more than other places. You just said setting, and I feel like a lot of what we're talking about um, here is not food. I mean, we can talk about the raisin toast and the you mm-hmm. know delicious things at all these places all day long, but um, it really is what really distinguishes some of these places is the vibe and the feeling, and some of it's the furniture and some of it's other things. But can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think what, it's also, yeah, I think it's also the fact that a lot of these places are still family run, and I think people get that vibe that there's someone there who's at the helm and is still really cares about what's going on and about the quality of the food and what what's happening. Um, for example, the dog on Main Street that used to be on Liberty, that big red fun looking place, mm-hmm. you know, that's started by uh, Jules and his wife and now his son is carrying on the tradition. Uh, so you can, and, and they make these, it's the world's best lobster bisque. 
I'm going to throw down and soup. say that. And the yeah. soups are amazing. They're all made from scratch. I've been in the tiny kitchen, and you can't believe what they turn out. But I think that's an important part of it, too, is that you sense these. there's families and traditions behind some of these places. And that's what makes you go back. Obviously, the food, too. But you feel good about going to these places. You do. You feel good spending your money there. And you right, feel good because they're not time. chains. You know, and no Main chains Street, in this book. Ma- we should have said that maybe at yes, the top of the hour. <laughs> there are no life is good. There should be less life is good stories on Main Street. I'm, I'm, I'm a one person. Get that store. I'm, we're not in Petoskey. We're in Ann Arbor. Get that store out of here. But um, yeah, and I always tell some of there's some of my favorites and La Dog is definitely one of them. Jules and Ika are really, you kind of name them out. I think toward the end of the book, you've got a section on the the real icons, sort of the people that have um, made Ann Arbor what it is. And I can think of um, those two, Jules and Ika of, of Ladog, and certainly Paul and Ari of Zingerman's. Um, I think of Ali at Jerusalem Garden. I was just <laughs> at Jerusalem Garden, and yeah. he's, yeah. He's an amazing um, guy too. What what is it about those? Is is it just a family run business thing? I mean, it, it's not necessarily true of uh, of a Paul and Ari, for instance. Um, but what is it that makes certain uh, people in certain places so um, integral to to uh, the restaurant scene here? I think people like seeing the same people when they go each time. If they see, like you're saying, Jules and Ika, or they go to and see Ali at the, they see the owners on the premises. They get this sense of comfort, like. Things are okay because the owner's there. And the son of Dominic is runs Dominic. So you go there and your expectation is are higher because you your expectations are higher because you see the owners there on the premises. I think it gives you a certain reassurance that, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, everything's gonna still taste the same and it's gonna be wonderful. Um, but another thing that sort of relates to that is how people when you said Ari and Paul so many of the people that started their own restaurants met at other restaurants at Mods in, in Ann Arbor. Case. So I talk about how at Mods, all the people that run the Zingerman's business businesses all worked together at Mods, which was a restaurant on Fourth Street. Mm-hmm. And then they all went on to form Zingerman's. And the guys that all worked at the Gandy Dancer all went on to form Real Seafood Company. Grazzi's and all those restaurants so people met each other they worked with each other and they said hey let's it's like hey let's start a band let's start our own restaurant (laughs) and I find that fascinating the genesis of how some of these restaurants were them all just starting out together as dishwashers shoulder to shoulder work in a restaurant I I find that really incredible and and um and it and it still continues today who knows Mm -hmm. what restaurant is being formed by somebody working somewhere right now a whole team of people that's, that's the next generation. That's exciting. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you have at Jerusalem Garden? Did you, were you just there before coming here? I love their tabbouleh because they make it with quinoa and uh-huh. they have, you know, their lentil soup cannot yeah. be beat. And yeah. if you go online, you can see Ali making like, I think literally a ton of hummus with this giant machine. But there's a family run business. The picture we have in the book of it is the old one and his father started it. So mm-hmm. again, here's a family run business. I remember his father sitting with this little hat in the corner of this tiny little restaurant the Jerusalem Garden and it was always packed but it again it, it was packed for a reason because the food is so great there can't get any better yeah, yeah. Um, our guest today on Living Writers is Gail Offen she's author of Iconic Restaurants of Ann Arbor and I'm your host Amanda Uli. Uh Frank Uli is running the board as our engineer today on WCBN um, 
Gail, when I, I flipped through this book a number of times since you gave it to me, and I've enjoyed it every time. And then I sat down a few nights ago and I read uh, the whole thing because I wanted to really oh, digest. Um, that was not a play on words, but I digested <laughs> the book. No, I love um, puns like that. And the next morning I woke up and there was only one thing that could possibly satisfy me, which was a muffin from Afternoon Delight, <gasps> because you really um, do such a wonderful job of kind of um, portraying uh, for the reader what those foods are. I don't I don't even remember what you said about the muffin, but I had a peach muffin the next morning um, on my way to work. Well, um, because I had to. It's a it's a family. It. It's one of the again. It's a family run business. The the most wonderful guy, Tom Hackett, has been running it. Who's still there? Who's still who there? Sold me the peach muffin. And as he says, he's only down to working seven days a week. <laughs> and what he loves is that he's on his third generation of of selling people brand muffins and like I said yeah. he had the first salad bar he gets such a kick out of it but there's still a line on weekends and when you think about where in the world is there a line for a brand muffin Ann Arbor is the place yeah. to me that's one of still one of the the iconic restaurants of Ann Arbor is Afternoon Delight and I'm so thrilled it's still there it is very much still there. And they have, uh, I think, some of the same dishes that they probably had when they opened in the 70s. Yes. The brand mm-hmm. muffins. The brand um, muffins. And the kind of baked potato with the stuff in it and the cheese and wh- uh, whatever else they have that um, is so wonderful. Yeah. Frozen yogurt piled high. Um, yeah. Great spot. Um, so I would love to um, have you ponder on a few of your favorite um, Ann Arbor meals. I know it's not fair to say favorite because there's, I don't know, are there 100 <laughs> restaurants in this book? more um yeah well you know not all of them are still around and some i'm very nostalgic for but they're certain to me must have meals and obviously one of them that i'm always talking about is the chapati at pizza bob's because Uh i feel like that's one of those uh you can't get that really anywhere else and i and you know the pizza's great there the subs are great there i worked there junior year of college i used to make um triple thick milkshakes for stoners late at night (laughs) And I just they were really good. Yeah. But Pizza Bob's is one of those places that is still around, thank God. And, um, you know, on game days, they sell 400 of these chapatis. If you don't know what a chapati is, it's a round pita bread that's filled with sort of, I mean, when I say it's filled with vegetables and cheese, it doesn't sound very interesting. But then uh-huh. they put this hypnotic orange sauce on it, and <laughs> I would drink it straight like a shot. That's orange. I don't know what's in it, but it, it's a magical, tangy sauce. And there's just something about the combination of it that's so unique. And it's the kind of thing when you say that to people, they just go, oh, like, that's what I love is when you say, like, a pizza about jihadis. I love when people just sigh when you mention certain Because they things. can remember it and yeah, they can they taste can it. they can taste it in their head. Uh-huh. And then I'll, frequently I'll hear from people going, okay, you mentioned chapati, so I got in the car and I drove to Pizza Bob's and I got it and got one to exactly. take home. I love when people it's do that. It's a peach that. muffin effect. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the brand muffin and I went, I haven't had it. It's been at least six months, maybe more. Please, if uh-huh. you do that, my email is iconicannarbor <laughs> at gmail.com and I have a Facebook page, annarborrestaurants.com. Post or let me know if you go do this. I love to hear when people go to uh, do that. That is definitely one of my favorites that I I go to again and again. Uh, I want to talk to you about some more favorite meals, uh, past and present, and maybe even future. Uh, but first, let's hear one more song. Okay. So your next song on your list is Tighten Up. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about why you chose that song, and then we'll hear it? Okay. Well, my inspiration in writing and not that it's really the style in this book, but is Linda Berry, who I think is really 
the most incredible writer. As I said, she's never written one word that I didn't like. Um, High praise. She's, yeah. But she's also very interesting about the creative process. And I was lucky enough to take a class with her a few years ago in Wisconsin. And I, I think it's like a life-changing class. And I don't use that word lightly, but she just talks about how to stimulate the creative process. And one of the things she talks about is when if you're doing a lot of if you type a lot of your work sometimes you need to just stop and actually physically write things down she calls it priming the pump and that the act of your hand on paper with whatever tool you want to use stimulates your mind to really think and write and I, I found that that's helped me so very much she even suggests drawing a spiral tiny spiral going outward and outward and as you're doing it, your mind is is going into place about what you want to write. She has these little tips and tricks. Plus, she's the funniest person at, in the world, and she's a wonderful cartoonist. And she's so great. I picked this next song because there's this great book called The Good Times Are Killing Me, <laughs> and among many of her books, and they made a play out of it. And she uses a lot of great music from the 60s, and there's this great dance party scene in the book with the song Tighten Up, and it made me think about her. And I suggest everybody check out something from Linda Berry. She's very accessible. She's no snob. She's a, she's a regular person who's very funny. Tighten up. <laughs> that whole song actually i wouldn't mind hearing that whole song <laughs> it's a great one we're getting funky here in the studio yeah uh, i want to thank gail often for being our guest here today on living writers and i want to thank frank yuley for running the board and doing so beautifully with tighten up um gail i just asked you about um a sort of iconic meal for you and it sounds like pizza bob's chapati wins out of all the many <laughs> thousands of meals you could have chosen and you're certainly the pro the only book you told me on ann arbor restaurants the is... only book i can find yes <laughs> I don't think i've seen one either and i'm really surprised but i think you're right 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 one. yeah um so tell me about, you can still get, in fact, when we leave here, if you want, you could go get the chapati from Pizza Bob's, mm -hmm. I think. 
What is a meal that um, you used to get here or that you even researched and read about and haven't had, um, but that you, you wish you could still I really access? wish, and so many people wish they could go back in time to Drake's Sandwich Shop on yeah. um, North U. I get more wistful looks from people when they talk about the grilled pecan roll. It was grilled in butter. And I just, I, people start to drool a little bit when they talk about Drake's. It was so of another era. It was... Um, you know, it was around since the 20s, and it never changed. It had these little wooden booths. It was painted hospital green. It was teas. It was a candy. And I love the name of the owners. It sounds like a Dickens novel. It was Truman and Mildred Tibbles. And she would sit and glare at you on her <laughs> stool, and he was this little guy. And these they had their staff wore these smocks and they would go on these step ladders to get these jars of candy up from wow. I mean it really was from another era like, uh... I know and it didn't close until you know the 90s and it never ever should have closed and become a Brugger's bagel it never, never should have uh, that just, should not have happened I have a picture in the book that I uh, my mother went to school here and she used to study there it looks like her having a little cigarette in the booth here but it was just a cozy unique spot and when you were saying about food from another era I love that one of their biggest sellers was an olive sandwich right and and the rest i have the recipe in there it's yeah Yeah. it's olive and cream cheese but they used to make this olive salad they used to take man grind up olives put mayonnaise in there and and mix it up and it was this olive sandwich and people loved it and and it was still on the menu like you know again in the 90s and um it was just um it used to truman tibbles used to leave the back door open for police to come in at night and just help themselves to candy or and and was the that ad- widely known it was that was or something just... i found out um is that he would leave the door open because he'd be there at night doing inventory and police would sneak in and get cake and and or a cup of coffee but what i love about that is the address was 709 north university and the police would call into the dispatcher and say they were going on a 709, which meant they were sneaking <laughs> off the tricks. That was widely known, and that oh, they were always I didn't uh, know that. there. And a lot of people, um, they had exotic teas like Thai food tea, and teas from around the world. So a lot of students, this was their first exposure to things exotic like that. And uh, it just—if you look at the pictures, you just want to go back in time. And I'd love to go back in time and have a. Uh, limeade there, which was another one of their icon. They do had freshly squeezed limeade, limeade, which was wonderful. My uncle, that was one of my first Ann Arbor food memories, was going there with my uncle and getting a limeade, and and it was just a great thing. We found um, a, a sign that used to hang in Drake's at an estate sale one day <gasps> long ago, and it's in our dining room now. I'm it says, "Carry your own order to the Walnut Room." I mean, with an arrow, and wow. you, you wouldn't see it in a restaurant now. We, we, we're afraid to tell people, carry your, your own order. I was going to say, yeah. what's your address? <laughs> when, and when are you not home? No. Um, ups, the Walnut Room was, um, it, it was formerly, that was the early name for it, upstairs. But then it became the Martian Room as a, uh, oh, wow. That's that's yeah. wonderful. So that was upstairs. It uh, was uh, later on became known as the Martian Room, right? And the whole fifties uh, space craze it became. It, it, yeah, different. the Walnut Room was the old days, and that. yeah, and there used to be yeah. music up there as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a wonderful Dancing. sign. Oh, treasure that! I'd love oh, to find something do. like that. We do. So, what about uh, a future iconic meal? Uh, what, what what's a restaurant that you have your eye on that didn't make it into the book because maybe they don't they don't have their icon status yet, uh, <laughs> but but you predict will. I think 
think Spencer is an interesting restaurant. I think yeah. the way they run it is uh, very interesting. I also think some of the restaurants at Mark's Carts, depending on what's there, have a future. And it's almost like a test for some of the restaurants. Like Miss Kim started out as a cart at, at Mark's Carts. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a lunchroom. And they're expanding now right. to a second restaurant. And I yeah. think the, the restaurant Mani Osteria has, is a, has a great following as well. You know, it's hard to tell what's going to stay on the test of time. Um, For example, the Real Seafood, which has been on Main Street since 1985, when they moved on to Main Street, now this is hard for your listeners to believe, but everything was happening out at the malls in 1985. Main Mm -hmm. Street was dead, dead, Mm -hmm. dead, dead. And they thought they were stupid to go on to Main Street. Now you look and it's... There's nothing at Briarwood Right, there's not. It's the tables have turned, but um, it's still... I was at Real Seafood a month ago, and it's still a really good restaurant. Uh, the guy that founded that learned everything from the Gandhi Dancer. He he was a waiter at the Gandhi Dancer. They all met and went on to start their own restaurants. So, Gail, can you tell us a little bit about um, food writing? Is that Have you done any uh, food writing where you're really describing meals and kind of reviewing restaurants? This is a little different uh, this is this to me is more historical writing and reporting. But have you done? Have you tried your hand at any food writing? No, but I I read a lot of food blogs, and I think mm-hmm. eventually I'd like to have my own food blog. But this is sort of a first step into it. I you know I come from a family that loved to cook. I had a grandmother that had made magical pies. They were wonderful. I had a cousin who used to have a tape measure and measure everybody's piece to make sure he got the biggest piece. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot uh-huh. of uh, rivalry. I had a, a wonderful grandmother who was four foot nine and was a great bake, baker and cook. And uh-huh. um, so I'd love to write about her someday. But yeah, I'd love to write more food books. And uh, this was a great start. What are you writing now? Are you working on anything? Um, I'm just freelancing, doing different kinds of writing. I'm actually, um, one of the things I'm working on is um, for Al Dante Pasta. They're doing a new, mm-hmm. and that's a, she was the former chef at um, the Blind Pig. And she went on to start Al Dante Pasta right. in 1981 out in Whitmore Lake. It's incredible handmade pasta. It's wonderful. Her name's Monique Deshane. And uh, Zingerman started carrying her pasta, and now it's sold nationally, and it's all still handmade in Whitmore Lake. It's wonderful pasta. It's spectacular pasta. It's, yeah, I'm it's very really familiar. great. So, so you're I, working with them? Yes, and um, I'm open to any other food projects as well uh-huh. because I love, you know, I always like to say food is our last legal pleasure, and it's <laughs> and so this was a great start in in down the world of food. Great. And I always ask our guest um, authors on the Living Writers Program to talk about what you're reading. So do you tend to read um, nonfiction and historical um, work like uh, like this book, or do you tend to read fiction? What's I think I, re- I read a, a mixture of both, but I do love to go back and look at old cookbooks. In addition to the fiction I read, I love to collect in old cookbooks because, again, they're from an era, you know, and to know what people were doing and eating during a time. I'm so fascinated by that. And, for example, I love reading books like Ruth Reichel um, 
and she actually, I have an anecdote about her in, she worked at this fancy French restaurant called Le Seine. Why don't you read it? Do you ha- Yeah, you I have it, it right there? here. Please read it for us. And, but she, I, I highly recommend her memoirs because she went to U of M and she has great, and they have recipes in there as well. There's Tender at the Bone, Comfort Me with mm-hmm. Apples. She's a really good, she was the former food critic at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. She's great. And she helped with this book. She sent a couple anecdotes. Oh, and nice. so I, I highly recommend her books. And this was a place I was fascinated with uh, called La Seine, which was a restaurant on Main Street. And uh, it's, the title is French Lesson, an authentic French restaurant with nine co-owners who knew little about running it. What could go wrong? Le Seine is the stuff that legends and cautionary tales are made of. Converting the Sugar Bowl restaurant took more than $200,000 back in 1966. Crystal chandeliers, Limoges china, and a grand piano set the mood. So did Chef Alexander Jeans, who trained under the creator of Crepe Suzette's. Service was intimate and hushed, and the waitstaff spoke French. Ruth Reichel worked there. And although her salary was only a dollar an hour, she would take home around $26 a day in tips. We have a menu here from 1967 that has classics like Duck L'Orange and Chateaubriand for two. The special salad was made tableside along with flambe desserts. It was hard to have a meal in under three hours, but those who had the time loved it. High prices, mismanagement, culinary tantrums, <laughs> and an old leaky building all led to La Morte for La Seine. Ambitious but delicious, La Seine closed a year and two weeks after opening. A sad story. I know. I know. And I think a restaurant like this today, if you look at some of the restaurants in Ann Arbor, uh, it, it would probably do really well. But back then, 1966, people didn't want to spend that kind of money in no. Ann Arbor. It was, uh, but it, I love that sort of, again, I love snapshots in time. And to me, that's a, mm-hmm. a real snapshot. Uh, there's actually a book called How to Grill a Gourmet that was written under a pseudonym by one of the owners about how everything went wrong and they just kept pouring more and more money into oh, it. Oh, really? And then it closed. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating well, it story. It brings up a good point because you're, the definition of iconic in this book um, is, is fascinating, right? So some places have been around decades and decades, less than a year and two weeks. Um, there, there is a certain something uh, that unites all these restaurants and makes them important to Ann Arbor's culinary history. But um, anything with the story, I am interested in. Yeah. I love the story about um, the Nobel Prize winner for physics in 1960 was a man, a U of M professor named Donald Glazer, and he mm-hmm. used to hang out at the Pretzel Bell, and he invented this bubble chamber theory that they said he came up with while he was watching the bubbles in a glass of beer go down a glass. So there's little bubbles in there. And they say that he got the idea for this bubble chamber theory by watching the bubbles go down the glass of beer. And those that know him say he would repeat this experiment over and over again. I love the story because he hung out there and and it tells you that drinking beer can sometimes lead to Nobel Prizes. Can lead to wonderful things. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We're almost out of time. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Gail Offen is our guest. Um, Gail, I think I promised in my promotional email that we would talk about Fraggles because as far as I know, it's it's an only in Ann Arbor thing. Mm -hmm. Can you give us the very quick, what Mm. is a Fraggles? Absolutely. A fragle is a deep fried bagel that's, it's not enough to deep fry it. Then you roll it in cinnamon and sugar. Started by the Bagel Factory, which was on South U. Shaky Jake used to Mm -hmm. like to hang out there, another iconic character. And now you can still get them at 12 and Telegraph. The Bagel Factory still exists in Southfield. If you're willing to make the drive, Mm -hmm. it's worth the drive. But you have to eat them while they're hot. That's the secret. Yes. 
Thank you for explaining Fraggles to us, <laughs> and thank you for joining us. Um, it was so nice to get to know you and thank your book, you. Iconic Thanks Restaurants so of Ann Arbor. It's been um, fun. We are going to close the hour with Red's Boogie, right? Is that our last song? Oh, from so. the Blind Pig, where they used to have yeah. a lot of blues players, and this is uh, one of them. He used to fall off his stool on a regular basis, Boogie Woogie Red. Here it is. Y bienvenidos, es el tiempo de la media hora norteña.
lo triste de 